Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You're listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast. And today we have on Robert Leonard, who runs two different podcasts and part of the Investors Podcast Network. Robert, uh, so glad to have you on the show. Eric, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so, so tell the listeners a little bit about you, because you, you have uh, quite the podcasting experience yourself. Yeah, now I do. I didn't a year ago. If you had asked me that question a year ago, I had no podcasting experience. Uh, but yeah, today I run two podcasts, and that is part of the Investors Podcast Network with our flagship show, We Study Billionaires. And so I host two shows in that network. One is called Millennial Investing, and one is called Real Estate Investing. On the Millennial Investing show, we talk about stock investing and personal finance with some entrepreneurship in there. And then on the real estate show, we talk about helping new investors get started in real estate investing. Now, explain to the listeners, so there's this Investors Podcast Network, and then there's the two podcasts you run. Explain how this is all interconnected. So think of it like your favorite TV network, if you will. It's essentially the same thing. So if you watch CNBC, you have Squawk Box, you have Shark Tank, you have all of these different shows, but they're all part of one brand. They're all part of CNBC. And it's essentially the same thing. So we have we originally started with just one show, and then we wanted to leverage that brand that we've built over the last five or six years. And so we launched different shows about different topics, and they just kind of all rolled together as part of one network, if you will, just like you would see on a television channel. And, and it started with We Study Billionaires, right? Yeah, that's correct. And tell us, and I know that's not your show, but just tell the listeners what that show's about. Yeah, so that show is all about, so originally when it started, it was strictly about value investing. It was about studying Warren Buffett style value investing. And they also obviously studied billionaires and they read a lot of books and did a lot of reviews of things like that. And then as the guy's philosophy has changed over the years, as their investing style has changed over the years, they have gone a little bit away from value investing. They are still value investors at heart. You know, we all are really at the network, yeah. but we've started to talk a lot or they've started to talk a lot about Bitcoin and macro trends. Preston's gotten really into those topics. So he's been diving into those a lot. And, and Stig is a little bit more on the value side, but he's coming a little bit to the growth side as well. Interesting. Got it. And then what had you get involved with these guys? And I mean, that's a pretty big show, right? I mean, they're... Yeah, the number one stock investing podcast in the world. Don't, yeah, not that big of a deal or anything like that. No, right? no. <laughs> um, and then you've had tremendous success with your podcast as well. So sort of... How did that come about? Yeah, I can't take any credit for that or, or very little for it, really. I mean, we just we've they've built such a great brand over the years. So when when we launched, it was kind of just another it was like another, almost like another episode coming out for We Study Billionaires, except it was just about a different topic. So, you know, we didn't see all of the audience come over, not even really a big percentage of it, but but quite a few did. And so that's really how the show's grown. That just leveraged that brand that we've had and just kind of really helped with all of our shows. And what were you doing before this? So I still work a full-time corporate job. Okay. So my day job, I'm a corporate finance manager at a middle market construction company here in the greater Boston area. I also invest in real estate and do the two podcasts. Cool. And then, and then so how did, you, how did you get involved with actually podcasting? How did this whole relationship come about? So back, the first podcast I ever listened to was We Study Billionaires. This was back in probably 2014, 2015 when they first started. And it was the first podcast I ever listened to. It was my favorite one. Mm. As I got into podcasts, I started to listen to other ones, but it still remained my favorite. And then one day, probably two or th two years ago or so, I was driving to my corporate job. It was like five o'clock in the morning. I like to go to the gym before work. And so I was driving to the, to the gym and I remember Preston or Stig saying on the show that they were looking for a host for a new show. 
and but they wanted it to be all about Silicon Valley. And so they wanted the person to have tech experience and live in the valley. And I said, well, I mean, that's not good. I can't do that. I don't live in the valley and I don't know anything about tech, so I can't do that. But I would love that opportunity. And so kind of just filed it in the back of my mind, didn't think anything of it. A year or two passed by and then I heard the same type of ad, if you will, but for real estate. I said, well, I'm a real estate investor. You know, yeah. possibly I could do that. That that might fit me. And so I reached out to the guys and Stig and I just started working on the process. And one thing led to another. We had great conversations. We liked working with each other. And we decided to launch the Millennial Investing Show first. And that's essentially like We Study Billionaires. It's essentially a spinoff of that, except targeted to a younger demographic. And then that show had success. That was like our test show. That was the first show that launched as part of the network. And then we went into the real estate show. And what kind kind of stuff do you talk about on the millennial show? So just like we study billionaires, essentially just, which is when you say you target, you target it for millennials. So what are the kinds of things? Yeah. So it's a little bit more beginner, if you will. So we're not doing as much deep, deep analysis or not as much macro, but we do, we talk about how, you know, portfolio allocation. We talk about how to analyze companies. We talk about different companies that we're looking at. We do talk about Bitcoin. Uh, we talk a lot about personal finance because I think millennials need to get that personal finance base set before they even really worry about getting into investing and being a successful investor. Because if you don't have that personal finance base, I mean, investing is is not going to do much for you. Right. So we talk a lot about that as well. I think that's cool because a lot a lot of people don't um, go into that um, realm per se. And they just, and they actually expect, so it's, it's a weird thing. Cause I, you know, I became a value investor, um, when I was 14 and then I went to my first Berkshire Hathaway meeting when I was 18 and it was, I'll tell you, it's a, it was a weird experience. I mean, it was a great, I mean, it's a great experience, but I'll tell you the, the weird thing was it was almost like no one took you seriously unless you were really wealthy. And they said, and there would be something like, um, well, you can't really be that good of know really what you're doing and, and until you're, you've made a lot of money. And I used to feel like, like, okay, like I'm 18 or I'm 21 or even I'm 25, right? If you, if, even if you compounded 15% a year and you're starting in a low base and then you're 25, 26, you're probably not going to be worth seven figures. And it was just interesting to me how, there was that stereotype and and i and i think that having a personal finance background to give you that boost right um is going to make you wealthier but then at the same time to like tell you know and i'm speaking to millennials right now if you're investing and someone's going to judge you because you're not a millionaire that doesn't mean you're a bad investor you could be a perfectly great investor and be managing you know your dad's money or something and you know a small portfolio of $200,000. So it kind of goes both ways. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's definitely, they just, people, a lot of people don't take you serious when you're uh, a young investor, regardless whether, whether you can, I mean, you just really have to be able to talk the language I think is what helps a lot. And so that's kind of what, what I want to do is help people get that base knowledge and so that they can have intelligent conversations and be able to show like, maybe I don't have as much experience as some of the older investors, but I know my stuff. I've, studied this material i know what i'm talking about and i can at least have an intelligent conversation about it and that helps give a lot of credibility and a lot of reputation and even if it takes time right i mean it's like that you know let's say you're looking for a job as an analyst or you want to manage some friend's money you know whatever it is 
it's not going to happen from necessarily one conversation. But if you can keep sharing those principles, not in ve- just investing in personal finance, pe- people over time will 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 um, take you more seriously, especially when you start giving you know financial advice to other people and, and say, oh, you know, what are you doing with your business? Have you thought about uh, investing capital in that place? And these business owners are like, what? Like, how do you understand my business more than more than I do? And, right. And right. so those those skills come in such handy. I think it's really cool what you're doing. Um, you. So what what are what are some of the topics that you feel on your millennial show? Let's start with the millennial show first. That have been sort of most interesting or most controversial or sort of led to the most you know sort of rich conversations. I think there's three topics that really do the best for us, and that's when we do deep dives into specific stocks or specific strategies. So recently we had Simon Erickson on the show and we did a deep dive into growth investing. So all about different types of growth investing. We're more tailored towards value. So I think people like to learn about that. Yeah. Uh, we recently had a guest that we did a deep, deep dive into Warren Buffett style value investing. We talked about Phil Fisher a lot and just that type of style of investing today. Those types of episodes have done really well. Uh, the per- personal finance episodes have been doing well and then Bitcoin has done well. You know, that's a, of a course topic. Bitcoin uh, will with, be well for sure. Yeah. You know, in with millennials, age. there's so many millennials that are interested in that topic. And then of course there's diehards that are into it. So, uh, those are really the three topics that have done really well for us. And we talk about entrepreneurship as well, but those episodes don't tend to do as well as those three other topics. What are, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be like even really hold the super intelligent conversation about it. I, am honored and blessed to have the opportunity to talk to some of the greatest minds in Bitcoin. And they've t- talked to me for hours. I mean, I've talked to Anthony Pompliano, Preston and, and some others for hours and they've explained it to me and, and I get it. You know, I understand it. Uh, I'm not fully bought into all of their thesis, uh, theses, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I, I could see it. I could see how it's possible and I could see how that's not going to be the case and it could be a lesser case of that. So I guess for me, I'm, more at the point where I'll allocate a small position of my portfolio to it so that if there is, do you, do you, do you own some just in case it goes to a million? I own 1% of my portfolio in Bitcoin. Okay. okay. I said, if 1% goes to zero and these guys are wrong and they're crazy and I just believe them and I, you know, what I learned from them is wrong, then so be it. I mean, 1% is not, I don't want to, I don't want to lose any money, but if I did, it's okay. Yep. And whereas if it goes up, like these guys think even a 1% allocation of my portfolio could be meaningful and material. So I figured I might as well, do some sort of allocation. You can, al- you can almost look at it as like a startup investment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's either going to, it's going to zero or it's going to make a lot of money. And that's kind of how I, I put it. And you know, the other day I, I bought actually, I got kind of lucky. Honestly, I bought back in March, I okay. bought around like 4,800. Uh, and I bought it and I haven't looked since. I mean, I'm a value investor. I don't look, look at the markets much. And somebody walked into my office that I talked to at work about finance. He follows my podcast and stuff. And he walked in. He's like, oh, my God, have you seen Bitcoin? I'm like, no, I, I haven't. Honestly, I mean, I'm on FinTwit. You know, I'm on Twitter and I right. didn't even notice. Like, I, I just I didn't even pay attention to it. He's like, it's over 11,000. Everybody's going crazy. I was like, wow, that's, I mean, that's great, you know, but I, I just, it's written off like all that money that I put in there already. It's like almost if it went to zero and I'll check on it in a little bit and see, see where it goes. If it goes to a million, wonderful. If it goes to zero, it's not going to be the end of the world for you. Exactly. Exactly. Bill, you know, um, Bill Miller says something similar. Um, he, he's been investing in Bitcoin. I don't know if you know much about what he's been doing. Yeah. We actually had him on. We study billionaires. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, yep. cool. 
anything interesting particular that he he said honestly i i kind of forget the episode i wasn't the one that had the conversation with him but i believe he's been on the show at least once if not more than that but uh yeah i haven't followed it too too closely interesting well i would actually if um once we're done with the show that would be a link i'd want to put in the show notes for uh for bitcoin stuff yeah absolutely so now you also do a real estate show too yes yep uh, real estate show we tailor it more towards beginner investors or newer investors that have done just a few deals or or you know basically don't own hundreds of units so so tell me more about that so basically it's a real estate show that helps people that want to learn how to buy rental properties is mostly what we focus on we do talk about flips a little bit here and there we talk about a lot of other creative strategies but uh, the main focus is building wealth through rental properties, your one to four units and really five to 25 units, maybe 50 units, but not really too, too much bigger than that. Okay. So, so, you know, full disclosure, I do run a real estate company and a real estate consulting company, but let's just pretend for a second. I know nothing about real estate. Talk to, you know, if you're going to talk to me, like I'm a new real estate investor, I've never owned real estate. You know, maybe I even think it's always oh, real estate. It's kind of sexy, right? There's that whole point of view that, Oh, like, I don't want to invest in some obscure stock, but you know, real. I find like real estate sometimes goes in the same category as like Bitcoin. It's like it's there's a, there's like a, an investment sex appeal to it. So if I'm like, okay, real estate's really great, seems really awesome. How do I get started? What what do you tell someone to the new aspiring real estate investor? The first thing I always recommend is do a house hack. I think that is the best thing. And so for someone listening that doesn't know what that means is. It's essential, and, and it can take a lot of different forms, but essentially what it means is that you're just buying a property and you're renting out the extra space. That's essentially what it means at its simplest core. So that could be you buy a single family house that has two bedrooms, three bedrooms, four bedrooms, whatever it may be, and you rent out those spare bedrooms and you collect that rent and then you get to live for cheaper. And then you could also do it with a two unit, you could do it with three unit, four unit, you can't really do it above that, but four units or less, and then you rent out the extra units or the extra bedrooms. So it's really just renting out the extra space that you have in your home to reduce your living costs. And that's how I got into real estate myself. Interesting. So then let's say the next step, say either someone's already done that or you just have, you know, your own living situation and you don't want to change it. Um, first, you know, for someone like that getting into say buying an investment property, what, it, what does that look like for, for the beginner? So I go contrary to a lot of what quote-unquote gurus would recommend but i actually recommend people go small okay and you hear a lot of people say oh you got to go big you know i wish i went bigger faster or i would you know all these different things you'll hear the grant cardones of the world you know don't waste your time with these smaller properties always go big and you know i understand that philosophy i'm a big thinker i have huge goals and i love their drive and hard work and determination and all of that you know I, i get all that but i think fundamentally i think that's flawed because as a new investor you just, you don't go out, if you're going to be a doctor, you don't go do open heart surgery as your first surgery, right? I mean, it's, it's anything like that. You've got to work your way up. And so I always say that your first property is not going to make you rich, but it could dig you a very big hole. And so I recommend people buy the smallest mortgage payment property that they can. And so that's what I did. My first rental property after I had house hacked. So I was confident that I could do a rental property. And so I went out and I bought a rental property. The mortgage payment was 300 bucks a month. And I said, worst case scenario, if this go, you know, if this is horrible, I can't rent it out. Everything goes bad. I can cover 300 bucks a month to float this property until I can either get it sold or figure something out, get a property manager, 
manager in there or do whatever I need to do to get some income coming in. Yeah. And so that's what I recommend to people because if you buy that first property and it goes horrible because you don't know what you're doing and you get foreclosed on or it just goes bad and you lose money, now either you're A, scared out of real estate, which is not good, and B, you're putting a big hole to start. Even if you you keep going, now you got to dig out of that hole before you even get back to zero. So I recommend start small, get your feet wet, understand what you're doing, put systems in place, learn how to talk the language. Just, there's a lot of stuff you can read and learn from books and podcasts, but there's a lot that you can't. So learn those things and then go from there. Then buy, if you buy a single family, buy a, a duplex, then buy four units, then buy eight units or so on and so forth and, and scale from there. But I recommend starting small. And when, so when you're, st- when you started, what areas did you look in? How did you find the real estate that you use a broker? You know, what, what, what was your process for that? So for my rentals or for my house hack? Your rentals. So I actually went long distance with my first rental. Okay. And so I live in the greater Boston area. It's a, an expensive market. I could have scrounged up the money to buy a rental here, but I felt that going back to that principle I just talked about, the mortgage was going to be three, four, five thousand dollars a month. And I said, well, if this goes bad, you're screwed. Uh, I, I'm screwed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is not going to be a good, good spot. So, and I don't want to do that. And so I started looking around the country. Basically, long story short, I, I found this gentleman named Neil Bawa, and he is a data analyst turned real estate investor, or data scientist turned real estate investor. And you know, we're stock guys, we're analytical guys, we like to analyze things like that. So his strategy really spoke to me, and I ended up having him on the podcast two or three times now. And he basically makes investing decisions based on demographic data, six data points. And so that's what I did: is I ended up developing a, developing a free platform so that we could analyze 7,000 cities across the U.S. and find the best markets for small investors to invest in. I mean, there's plenty of data for, you know, large multifamily, 100-unit-plus property companies to buy. But for, for smaller investors, I didn't find anything out there, so I built it. And so that's what I did. I found 25 cities across the U.S. that had really good demographics that I wanted. It had inventory, and there was also real estate investors, agents there that I could talk to that understood what I was talking about. And so I just started making offers. I think I had, I forget, honestly, 12, 13 offers out across these cities at one time. And then I told myself, whichever one hit first, I'd go with. And sure enough, one hit and just been investing there since. And then how did you find a property manager? So I managed myself long distance. How do you do that? So it's all about finding a really good agent. So you have a really good agent and they do some things. I do all the property management, but they just help with some of the leasing. So just think of like a leasing agent. So when we have turnover, he'll help get a tenant in there. He'll do the showings. He'll give the keys, things like that. We just pay him 50% of the first month's rent, okay. and he handles all that. So it takes a lot of that off our plate. But in terms of the day-to-day, I mean, it's really simple, honestly. Knock on wood, the properties have been really good. It takes one, two hours a month, if that. And So what if, it, what if a tenant has a, a pipe that bursts? So I love when people ask these questions because – these are these would be these would be I'm putting myself in the shoes of someone who knows nothing about investing, right? This would be a, probably a typical question. You live yeah, yeah. far it's away. Great, great someone question. has a pipe burst at two in the morning. What do you do? Yeah, it's a great question. You have no property and, manager. They can't call the emergency line. What do you do? Yeah, it, it's it really is a great question. And when I told my parents that I was going long distance and all my friends, they all kind of laughed because they had that same question. And I said, so I said to them, I, I kind of spun it on them. And I said, well, if I own the house next door to me, and a pipe burst at two a.m. What am I going to do? I'm going to call someone and they're going to go fix it because I can't swing a hammer to save my life. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know anything about any of this stuff. So Mm -hmm. 
it doesn't matter to me if it's next door, if it's 2000 miles away, I'm calling a professional that knows what they're doing and they're going to go take care of it. Yeah. And so that's what I do. And you, know, you have everything. those guys already in place yeah, for exactly. something exactly. and you know, who's so reputable, really good agent. Exactly. So my real estate agent is also an investor. So he has all those contacts himself. Yeah, those contacts. So he has a Rolodex of people that I just can call. And anytime there's a problem, I get that info from him. And then once you start working with people, you know, they're trustworthy. And anytime something goes wrong, we get a maintenance request for our software, send it to them, they go handle it. And so it's really no different as if it was local or, or long distance for me. Now, how are you? Uh, it's really interesting. So how do you um, look at, say, you know, where you think the future of the home prices in a certain area is going to be. So demographics, all that just compared to, you know, the cap rate that you're getting. So I don't really focus too much on the cap rates because I'm looking at smaller properties. Yeah. So cap rate just isn't a, a focus for me. I'm, if you're getting into the larger multifamily, that's when I start to focus on the cap rates. So for me, I really focus on cash on cash and my IRR, IRR over the length of the period of, that I plan to hold the property. Uh, in terms of focusing on where I think prices are going, rents are going, things like that, I just use the six de- demographic data points to to hopefully lead to where I think things are going. You know, we there's no just like in stock investing, there's no guarantee that these demographic data points just because you have, you know, just because you have strong income statement, balance sheet, cash flows doesn't mean you're going to be a good stock investment. It's the same with the demographic data. It doesn't mean it's going to be a great area. It doesn't mean it's going to grow. It doesn't mean things couldn't change. But I rely on that data and just assume and hope that things are going to continue the way that they are. And what, and what kind of IRR are you looking for, for a piece of property? So for the IRRs, I'm usually looking at at least 20% over a 10 year hold period. And how are you, how are you, um, calculating that? How are you, how are you factoring those numbers? So for the IRR, just take out your cash, initial cash outlay. So typically your down payment, any closing costs you have, any other ancillary costs that go into the property when you're buying it, and then your net cash flow per month, just add or or I usually annualize it so over a ten year period, so you have your net cash flow for the next ten years, and then at the end you have a windfall of cash, assuming you sell the property. So then put that in, you know, net of any expenses that you have from real estate fees, things like that, and that's your last value, you know. Net so present so value why back. so why would you say that cap rate is not relevant to that? It can be relevant, but that's just an unlevered return. And so for me, it's just in the small multifamily and single family space, it's just not really what we, you know, the multifamily, the large multifamily. I guess, space I, guess I guess, I guess what I'm asking, here's what I'm asking, right? You're looking at a property, say in a, you know, a rural area, or maybe it's sort of a lower tier city and it's a nine and a half, 10 cap. And then you're looking in a, a place where it's a two or three cap. Obviously, that's going to change, you know, your year one um, rate of return, which is then going to play into your IRR, right? If you, if you have a, a three cap, you're going to assume that the that housing price is going to go up more over the next 10 years than, say, investing in Buffalo or Binghamton or something where the cap rates are going to be higher. So I would think that would would go into the analysis because that's the initial cash flow that you're you're getting back and sure it's on it's an unlevered return but if you have a mortgage you 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 calculate your mortgage expense and so what what am i missing there yeah so i guess you're thinking that a lower cap rate could lead to a higher terminal value if you will when you go to sell the property at the end of the 10 years but potentially i i'm I'm asking your thoughts about it i usually just i when i analyze my deals i don't add a ton of value for appreciation 
at so, the end. So, so then so then what it sounds like is you're looking at higher cap rate properties then. Yeah. On on typically. Okay, yes. so the so the cap rate is does matter to you. It it does. I just I don't really look like focus on it too much. I the two things I look at are cash on cash and IRR, but it if you were to like focus in on on the properties that I've been analyzing, you would probably see the trend that you're saying. I think we're probably saying the same thing except you're just looking at the different metrics. Yeah. Yeah. Which the byproduct would be a higher cap rate. Agreed. Okay. Agreed. Okay. We're on the same page. Okay. Inter- interesting. So, and so one of the reasons why I don't like the cap, I not necessarily don't like cap rate, but uh, larger multifamilies are traded or, or sold based on their cap rates or priced on their cap rates. Small multifamily and single family aren't. So that's kind of one of the reasons why I just don't spend a lot of time focusing on it. So obviously I think, I think the fact that if you're starting small where there's just less competition from funds and all that, and you get a higher cap rate property and you're and you're not assuming lots of appreciation in the actual home price, you can actually have a higher IRR with these smaller uh properties. Correct. And there's higher no and no surprise, as you go scale up, the cap rates tend to come down. Correct. At least that's yep. what I have seen. That's exactly what I've seen as well. So we're literally approaching this from completely two different angles coming to the same conclusion. Exactly. exactly. And see, isn't this interesting with the markets, right? And, and and I think this is also why it's it's potentially dangerous, whether it's in stocks or real estate or any kind of asset, it's potentially dangerous when you don't understand when you're looking at metrics but you don't understand why the metric is the way it is. Like a lot of people, right, who are value investors, they start out, especially if you're young, you go, I'm just gonna buy a bunch of low PE stocks. Right? That was me. That was me too. Or well for me it was low, I'm gonna buy lots of low price to book stocks right and you know i didn't actually do as well as when i started just looking at things more holistically right so if you know i I think if you were going to real estate and you go okay i'm just gonna buy anything with a high cap rate like you could get pretty screwed over if you do that yeah and i think i think for me i'm really focused on the cash on cash and and i would need to do more analysis to say that the correlation or how they those two work together but for me you know if you have a lower cap rate but a higher cash on cash that's fine with me sure or if you have a lower cash on cash and a high cap rate that's not really great for me because i don't really care about that so it really depends on you know what you're focused on what your goals are what you're you know and, and kind of where you're investing if you're investing on the coast you're going to see you know a lot more appreciation on the back end whereas i invest mostly in the midwest so we're not seeing a ton of appreciation so i'm really focused on that cash on cash which is driven by your cash flow no, it seems like we have more in common than I realized. I'll leave it at that. It's a very value investing style uh, yeah. real estate approach. Yeah, I, I look at it as like the OTC market of real estate. Exactly. I do too. And and I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Chad Carson, but he's a big uh, real estate guy, but he's also a big Warren Buffett fan. And so he comes at it from the same approach. And he and I talk frequently about, about this, how we're you know Warren Buffett style real estate investors. So interesting. Do you, do you follow um, the guys at Brookfield? I do. I own. I own shares. Do you? Yep. Let's talk about Brookfield for a little bit then. I think they're a pretty interesting company. Yeah. So, yeah. So honestly, I haven't. I haven't really focused on my thesis on Brookfield in a in a while. It's been. I've owned. I've just held. I bought a long time ago. I just kind of held them forever, and I really haven't uh, checked up on them too too much. But yeah, I just. I've. I've believed in the company for a long time. And when did you? Uh, when did you invest in Brookfield? Honestly, I was looking at my portfolio today, and I I forget the year, but it was probably. Around when I was nearing the end of college, so 20, 
2015, 2016, maybe. Okay. How did you uh, discover them? I forget. I think it was through... I think I was looking for Warren Buffett style type comp- or Berkshire t- Hathaway type companies and okay. you know people that are similar to Warren Buffett if you will. So there's probably a group of companies that a lot of us have probably looked at. Exactly. Markel. Markel um uh, Allegheny. Yep, Tom Gain uh Tom Gainer came up, um Prem Watsa from Fairfax. You know, yeah. So uh, yeah, Fairfax. So all those types of companies that are your typical Warren Buffett. There style. was there was um White Mountain Insurance. Oops. Oak tree, oak tree. Um, yeah. Not not really quite the same, but similar. The, the um, same spirit. I mean, they're all exactly. little. They all have their differences, but it's yeah, the, the exactly. same spirit. L- Lucadia was one years ago. Did you ever follow? Yeah, you ever follow those guys? I uh, no, I'm not familiar with them. Never. Did you never heard of Lucadia? No. Wow. So they were. Um, they're Jeffrey's Financial now, but it was these two guys, and they were like value. They were like hardcore, deep value, distressed. Value investors in their track record uh, for most of their history from the, since the seventies was pretty good, and then there was the Jeffries merger, uh, and Rich Handler took over, and things have not been so good since then. That's I would I would recommend you look at their um, the old Lucadia shareholder letters. They're fascinating. Yeah, I'll have to check those out. Yeah. So who else do you um, so you follow Bruce Flat at Brookfield? Yep. Um, any other? interesting managers that you've you've come across over the years or that have come on to you know your podcast uh i follow guy spear and monish pabrai a lot okay uh, honestly so for the first probably 10 years that i was really in investing i was strictly into stocks that was it i thought that was you know the end all be all i didn't i never thought i could be a real estate investor so that was all i studied and then i learned about real estate and i still love stock investing it's yeah. still one of my passions but I'm really into real estate. So over the last few years, to be completely honest, I haven't been studying, you know, money managers or even really following my, my positions as much as I used to. I still do. You know, I have a couple, I really, I run a really concentrated portfolio. So I have a couple positions that, I mean, I think the top four or five positions in my portfolio are like 80, 85% of my portfolio. So I follow those pretty closely, but for the most part, I've really just been studying real estate a lot. And so I don't follow a ton of money managers these days. Well, do you, do you study real estate guys? Are there are there people in the real estate world that you study? Yeah, they're just not as big name. That's what you'll see is like when you go in the stock. Yeah, market, when, I, when I asked people. that, I, it wasn't just necessarily for a stock investment. I'm talking about anything. Yeah, yeah. So for and it could for be Sam estate, Zell, like I, you know, whatever. Yeah, so I don't follow any big name real estate guys. I just follow all, there's like like Chad Carson. Uh, I love how he approaches real estate. I love how he thinks about things, but he's he, not a lot of people know him. I mean, he's a relatively small no, guy. No, never heard of him. He sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah but he, he's a great guy, uh, super down to earth. You know, I've been lucky to have conversations with him. Uh, Kirk Duplessis, you may be familiar with him. He's the founder of Option Alpha, but he's a big real estate investor as well. So oh, I love how he thinks about it. And so now, so, what, 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 just, so a guy, guy like that, how, how does he think about real estate that's a little different? The same way we do. So he's he's not your day trading options trader that a lot of people are he runs a very conservative like statistical options strategy so he always talks about probabilities he says you you know you have to run a thousand trades and you're going to lose on three if you're running a 70 percent trade you're going to lose on 300 of these and you're going to win sure. on 700 of them right so he's very conservative and he takes the same type of approach to real estate as as we've been talking about like a warren buffett style approach to real estate it's so interesting it seems like there's even less people doing that there is. And and that's why I like uh, doing both the shows, because if you listen to 
I'd say 97% of real estate shows and, and I'm not knocking them because there's a lot of great shows out there and I love listening to them. But when you listen to them, almost every single one says real estate investing is it. Like that's all there is. Every other asset class, yeah. you know, is bad, is subpar. And what I try to do is, is talk about how it's not the only asset class. I talk about it. It is a great asset class. It's my focus right now, but I think there's there's place in everybody's portfolio for both stocks and real estate. So on the real estate show, although we are focused on real estate, I try to get people to say, hey, this isn't all, you know, this isn't everything you need to invest in. The way that I look at real estate, so here's here's my perspective. You're going to get another perspective on real estate and you can I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. The way that I looked at real estate is it's kind of like I don't even know what decade you would compare it to as stocks, but it's like Say you have a bunch of these like you know high flying growth stocks, right? So these like two caps, right? In like Los Angeles or something like that. Yep. yep. And then you have tons of these just like small little one off, two off, three off um, homes in just like random parts of the country, where the returns actually it's like even if you assume zero growth in the um, the home prices, your IRR comes to like 25%, 23%, not taking a lot of risk. Like nothing's wrong with it. You know, it's not like a crack house or, you know, right, it's right. some kind of crazy drug den or a brothel. Under, you know, it's like a totally normal place and you're getting these crazy IRRs. And, and then no one's really like talking about it, right? It's like even most of what you hear about on real estate is something really hot or it's going to be a hot market or here's what's, tra- you know, even like I live in Philadelphia, right? So one of the, the real estate things people talk about is, oh, Fishtown, you know, last 10 years, Fishtown has become, it's it's the next Williamsburg, Brooklyn, right? And cap rates are pretty low in Fishtown. If you still have continued growth in Fishtown, you, you'll probably do good on the property appreciation side. And if Fishtown kind of stagnates, maybe the returns aren't so great. Um, but, you know, people love the story of someone, you know, getting the property for free from the government. And then like 10 years later, it's worth several million dollars. Yeah. You're seeing that in Detroit too. I, I invested, I invested in Detroit. That's so, um, you still see it in Detroit actually. Yeah, I I believe so. Yeah. Um, I don't want to give away too much (laughs) of what I'm doing. Um, but the, but it's kind of, it it is kind of like that, you know, where even back in like in the bed and grant, I feel it's like, you're back in the Ben Graham days with stocks, right? Where it's like he talks about these like high flying companies, but then you just go buy a basket of net and that's field. It really well. I feel like these, the homes that we're talking about are like the basket of net nets that just are out there. No one's doing anything about it. And everyone just, just wants to talk about some hot real estate market. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. I bought a property down in Texas, single family straight off the MLS, almost term key. It cash flows like three fifty a month. Yeah. You know, and- we, ha- yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. And it's like, why did, like, where, where is everybody, you know, why didn't this get bought? You know, why are people overlooking this? And like you said, it's well, we have, answer. we have, I, I have, I think I do have an answer to that is that people do anchor to the past, right? And you always want to extrapolate patterns based off what you've seen before. I mean, just look at people who follow stock charts. So it's like, you know, um, you know, like when Buffett was investing, right? You know, the, the thing that isn't always talked about is, he was investing like starting at the perfect time also you know he's a great investor right i mean i love him that's how i got started but a lot of these guys were starting at a time where you could 
buy like you know companies Anything. with nothing wrong with them at like three times earnings. Right. You can't do that anymore. At least not not, not yeah. So you have all this real estate stuff. It was like, well, I'm a stock investor. You know, I'm a value stock investor. And they look at these old, you know, well, look at Berkshire. We've done 20% a year. and But it's a different time. So you can make it harder on yourself and look for more obscure opportunities, which, you know, granted, I still do. And still we talk about that on, on this show. But, you know, you could... um you know, you could be scrolling the OTC markets or random stuff on like the alternative investment market in England, right? And and find these like two million dollar market cap companies. But there's there's plenty of opportunity there too. But you could also just look at a real estate listing and like find these nine, ten cap rate homes with nothing wrong with them. And seem you know, I, and I have no problem saying this on the show because I know people are going to download this, and it's not like it's going to change you know the market tomorrow. Um, but then maybe the next thirty years. The next Warren Buffetts of the world are going to be the people that started into real estate buying these kinds of things 30 years later. Then let's say all the cap rates are at 4% and then no one wants to do stocks anymore. And then things are back to three or four times earnings. So I, th- I think you have to be forward looking with this and not just look at the past. And I think people just look at the past. That's my view. Yeah, I agree. I think there's just so much that technology has changed. You know, there's just the availability of information to exchange hands it, i think it's just led to everything that you just talked about 100 percent. and if you notice right there's still a lot of dysfunction with real estate i don't there's no there's no like basic real estate screener where i can just screen every property listing in the country based off you know a variety of metrics right i can't look at the balance sheet of every you know i can't look at the financials and tax returns of every property on yahoo finance there's no real estate section and what, what, what's interesting about real estate is you're dealing with, I mean, in, so in the stock market, you're dealing, there's always somebody else on the other side of your trade. So mm-hmm. you are dealing with a human, Yeah. but it's not the same as real estate. With real estate, you're almost always dealing with, at least in the scale we're talking about, you're talking with a human on the other side. And there's a lot of different things that go into why somebody might sell a property, why they might yeah. sell it at the certain price they are. And, and that all plays a factor. Like when we, so the property that I ended up getting, they were asking one price, I forget what it was, honestly. And then we made a full cash offer, my business partner and I, we made a full cash offer and they wanted proof of funds. And we said, which is normal, you know, not a big deal, but we were like, it's going to take two to three days to get that from our bank. We don't want to go through that hassle. Like if you don't, you know, if you're not going to believe us, we'll just back out. And so we backed out of the deal. And then the agent called us back the next day and said, Hey, we got seven offers. Do you want to submit a final, a best and final? And we were like, sure. And so we submitted a best and final, like 10% under asking. And our agent said, there's not a chance you're ever going to get this property. Yeah. We got the property. <laughs> isn't, that, so, isn't that funny? It's like, it's just like, like you said, I mean, there's just humans on the other side of the, the trade. So I, it's just not efficient, you know, and also, in some cases, it is, a lot of these brokers, a lot of these brokers are lazy too. Yeah. Yep. It is blowing my mind working. I mean, you know, the guys that I'm working with in Detroit are amazing, but there's some other people I've worked with in terms of looking at listings and, you know, I'll see a listing and they'll, they'll say, here's the cap rate and here's the thing. And I'll do the numbers. And I'm like, this, I actually just had the situation uh, a few weeks ago. And there was um, there was an asset I was looking at in a certain place. And I call up the real estate agent. And I'm like, I'm looking at your listing. I'm looking at the offering memorandum. And the numbers don't work out to the cap rate listed in your ad. And she goes, oh, no, your numbers are correct. I'm like, what? 
So why is your ad say this? And she goes, well, that's what the seller wanted. I never really like double checked. Like what? Could, could you, yeah, could you, there's, there's could a you, lot of that. There's, and it's, it's, it's so common and you know, she's still going to get her paycheck. And the, the truth is you can kind of be a lazy broker and be okay and comfortable. Well, that's why if you look at like a lot of, when you get into a little bit bigger properties, a lot of times they'll give you a set of financials, whether it be pro forma or what they've had in the past. And yeah. it's a lot of people take that at face value. And, and just like you said, there's no way you can do that. You need to go no. through and check all of those. I'll tell you more, more than 50, more than 50% of the time, maybe 80% of the time I find something different or I find an anomaly. Yeah, and it, it's not even that they're trying to be deceitful no. or that they're wrong. It's you could just see the world different. I mean, you could have one vacancy number and they could have something else. Or, you know, I mean, there's so many different things that could go into it. But you just always got to check those numbers. I've I've seen listings where I'm like, can I get can I get your um, property taxes? I don't have that number. Well, what did they, are they? Did they not file taxes? Like, okay, I guess I can ask the seller if he can get. It. It's like, were you not calculating property taxes with your expenses? Like. Could you imagine a public company? It's like, oh, we forgot to put our corporate tax rate and into the, uh, to the earnings. <laughs> like, be, I know, right? Be bizarre, right? Yeah. So it's 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 a very dysfunctional market, and with that dysfunction leads to opportunity. Opportunities. Yep. Exactly. So interesting. Completely agree. It's cool. I'm having this conversation because I because I kind of feel in the value world, I'm kind of like a lonely guy talking about real estate. I don't have many people to talk about it with. Yeah, it's it's and, I, and I'm kind of surprised by it because there's value deals to be found in real estate and like we just talked about there's inefficiencies that can be made and yeah you just got to find I, them. I will tell you I'm not surprised because it takes more work though. That's why. In in my experience, this is again my point of view, my perspective, my experience, I have found that anytime I've done something differently with the value lens, if it's different than what so here's the joke in the value investing community. Everyone wants to say they're doing something a little bit different, that they're free thinking. And there's a lot of people like that. But we're still human. We're still fallible to you know human psychology. And it's, it's interesting that um, often a lot of value investors, they all think they've discovered something, you know, interesting and they're all contrarian but then the value community as a majority believes in the contrarian view which then isn't necessarily so contrarian and any anymore you know so there's always right. been these like value you know it's like the amount of times people talked about sears when you when you know you could easily see the thing was a train wreck but how many smart people bought into the sears story a lot and i forget who the super investor was was it um it was uh, Bruce, oh, there was Bruce Berkowitz. Yeah, Bruce Berkowitz. That's who it was. But he, I mean, he ended up taking over the CEO role. And then Eddie, oh, Eddie Lampert took over the CEO. Eddie Lampert too. Yeah. There was, I mean, there was a lot of people talking about the real estate play, SRG, SGR, SRG. Uh, yeah, heritage that, growth that properties. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, because Warren Buffett bought a stake, and then everyone thought yep. they discovered a gem. Yep. I, yep. And I, I remember, I remember being at a dinner when I was a teenager, and it was still during the time where Buffett like wasn't giving a charity and people were talking about like priding themselves on how they don't give the charity. So it's, it, 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 it's, it's, inter- it's interesting. Um, and it, it just goes back to like how 
perception. And so that's like why I think a lot of the real estate opportunities are like I'm buying single family properties. And I mean, it's not like something you could show on the Internet and be like, hey, look what I just bought. I just bought a hundred unit apartment complex. And it comes back to like public perception. People would rather look cool on the Internet these days than buy a deal that's earning them, you know, a cash on cash return in your first year of 35 percent, you know. So sure. Even though the and numbers are there, you, there's, there's not some nice little neat model, right? Exactly. That you can, it can't say it's a trading at a, it's a 10 PE or it's here's the price right. to book, right? And right. and and anything that's a little bit more nuanced, like if you say, well, you know, it was an interesting tenant and the seller had, a, you know, there's all these nuances to it. Well, that doesn't fit nicely into a spreadsheet, so let's ignore it. You know, yeah. I've had I've had I had this experience with studying, um, and I think we talked a little bit about this on the phone privately, where just sort of my background studying, you know, organizational culture and transformational coaching in that whole world, right? And you have organizations, I I know a few offhand, that do something in the world of transformational coaching. And when they work with companies, you know, the profits of these businesses exponentially grow. I'm talking, you know, there's one consulting firm that I know, the average company they work with, and I, I won't say the name because these numbers aren't public, but the average cons- client they work with those profits go up by 600 percent in year one that's the average result and these are companies some of that have been flatlining for years and but then you say well how did you do it what's what's the formula what's the you know they again people want the formula they want the little thing you could put into a spreadsheet to have the perfect little output and the problem is you can't you can't show that in a spreadsheet so then if it's not fitting into a spreadsheet, well, then we're going to ignore it and it doesn't exist and it's speculative. And if it's not black and white and easy, people don't want it. And I think that also speaks to, so this is, this is interesting, right? Guys like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, they aren't so black and white. They actually think very non-linearly. And what's interesting, and this is not something I think that gets talked about a lot. And it's, you know, there's going to be people listening to this that are going to like, probably never listen to my show again after I say what I'm going to say. But there's a lot of people who they say, Oh, I'm like Buffett or I'm like Munger or I'm like this, but they're, but they're approaching it from a very linear perspective. And it's, it's, it's very much, um, you see this a lot with engineers, for instance, where it's very, everything, you know, the world is very black and white. And, but then when you get to the human factor, which is not very black and white, because life is not black and white. It's very, it's very nuanced. It's the the qualitative stuff is is if there's it, it's harder to to grasp, and that doesn't mean you can't have principles and algorithms behind that. It's just more nuanced. Well, we did we we mentioned earlier that we did the same thing. We were both just buying low PE or price to book, you know, yeah. stocks. It's the same thing. Totally, totally the same thing. Yeah, and we were calling ourselves value investors, but we really weren't. We were probably overpaying for quite a quite a number of assets. We were pricing in the qualitative or non-financial value or lack of value that was there. We were just looking at at the numbers. Yeah, and of course, the the exceptions make the rule. Like, you know, if you buy a net-net portfolio, you you might do okay. But then maybe the last few few years, you haven't done okay, right? So everything works until it doesn't, and not everything works all the time. So again, there's nothing inherently, right? So there's nothing inherently wrong with qualitative just being qualitative as well. You know, but then it's it's knowing that you're just qualitative. Some people pretend that they're they're 
quantitative, but they're really being qualitative or they pretend they're qualitative and they're really being quantitative, right? You see that a lot in growth investors where they can plug into a spreadsheet numbers that justify their valuation, right? That's, that's the opposite, right? They're, they're saying they're qualitative, but they're purely quantitative. Yep. So, and, and I, I actually am both, but you don't have to be both. You don't have to choose to be both. Um, it's a, it's a muscle to train your brain in. So, Buffett and Munger are are both very qualitative and quantitative. They have both muscles. I've I've spoken to Charlie Munger about the culture conversation. He got it quicker than almost any other person I've ever spoke to in my life about it. And so so and it was just like wow, all these value guys dismissing me, but Charlie Munger is like eating it up and totally understanding what I'm talking about. Which then they don't get enough credit for the qualitative aspects that they no, put they, in the valuation of companies. And what was amazing about Charlie, I'm not going to go too into the conversation to respect his privacy, but what I will say is when I share with him some of these ideas, he had never heard of them before. And he was able to operate at a conversation with me about these principles that made it seem like he had already studied this for two years. Where there are still, you know, smart value guys, and I put that in quotes because. They're smart in their own way, but the qualitative necessary, not so much. And I've tried talking to them about this stuff for three or four years and they still don't get it. Yeah. You know, like I'm sure. Well, like, Charlie's, Charlie's brilliant. He's yeah. in his own. But, but this is what I'm saying is that, you know, these guys like Buffett and Munger, right? They, they also know how to speak to people and speak to people where they're at. And they really don't get enough credit for how above and beyond brilliant these guys are when you actually talk to them. I've never spoke to, to block, I've asked Buffett a question, but I've never like sat down and had a conversation with him. I spent 45 minutes on the phone with Charlie and it's like, okay, this guy is at a totally different level of brilliance. And it's like, this is why he's successful. This is why Warren works with him. You know, it's not just like, I have nothing to add and this guy's a, a diddly squat idiot. Like, right, right. you know, or, or having some witty joke that he can make it a daily journal meeting. Yeah, yeah, he loves those daily jokes or the, the the witty jokes. They're but so he, good. <laughs> he's just so okay with being, you know. On, he knows. It. I mean, he's so confident. and He knows all that, and he doesn't need to be in the spot like like Buffett is. You know, he's fine with being the the quiet mastermind. People you know, off people, the side. people see this only. I think people have only scratched the surface of the brilliance of Charlie. Yeah, I agree. I'm actually reading. I'm not reading it right this second, but I've been flipping through uh, Charlie Munger's almanac. I can't wait to get that's, back to it. Oh, that's good. It. It's so good. And you can reread that too. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait. I, I have a lot of books uh, that I've got to get through and that's probably like third or fourth on my list. What, what have you been, what have you been reading lately? So one of my favorite entrepreneurs uh, named Andy Frisella, he just released a book called 75 hard. It's not finance or business uh-huh. related at all. It's a mental program that helps you uh, basically become the best version of yourself. And the subtitle of the book is a tactical guide to winning the war with yourself. Oh, cool. So that's what I've been reading. Uh, and also, uh, Dave Ramsey's total money makeover. Uh, I get a lot of people that uh, talk about that and ask me questions about it. So I'm trying to learn a little bit more about it. And then I'm also reading, so I'm always reading three books at a time, uh, interestingly enough. So those are two. And then, uh, the third one, I forget the title, but it's all about, um, it's the Japanese book about decluttering your life and really getting organized. Oh, is it that? Is it that woman? Yes. Oh, yeah, I, I know exactly. I, I heard. I heard her interviewed. Yeah, sounds. Yeah, I've heard really amazing things about the book, so I'm reading that too. Have you? Have you? How far into that are you? Not far. Just a couple. Nah, maybe fifteen, twenty pages. It's, there's got to be a. Th- there's got to be a thing to it though, because like right, you you clean. 
and you feel good. Yeah, that's that's what it's about. Yeah, it's right. like doing certain things. I don't know. Yeah, you walk I honestly, into a room and the bed's made. It. It's like there's. Have you okay? I don't think this is a myth. Maybe I'm just bullshitting. But maybe this is just the placebo effect. I literally feel I walk into a room. There's fresh sheets. And the bed is tucked right, and the pillows look nice. I'll I'll have a better night's sleep. Yeah, I agree. I feel the same way. But I'm also a little OCD and like everything to be very clean. So, yeah, yeah. So I think that like I'm not very OCD. But then when I clean, I'm like, oh, I forgot how OCD I actually am. Right, right. It's, it, yeah, it's interesting. So I'm I'm reading those three books. The reason I read three books at once is I always have an Audible, okay, an ebook, and a physical book. I was just going to ask you if there's this. Okay, so and, so it's not and the it's reason not for that is categories. I can read them all at different times. So when I'm like reading before bed, I don't want to read my ebook because I don't want the light and I want to be able to, you know, I don't want that blue light right before I'm sleeping. So I read my physical book or if I'm a lot of times I'm working out or cycling. I, I just got into cycling. Oh, and cool. so I go on some long rides and so I can listen to my audio book okay. or if I'm, you know, somewhere where I have access to like my, my iPad, I can travel really easily with a bunch of books on my iPad. So I read my, my ebooks that way. So things like that. And that's, that's why cool. I always have three going at once. So it, it, they can be any kind of topic. It's just the, the platform that they're on is different. Exactly. It's kind yeah. of a cool system. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you read like do you read like magazines or newspapers no. or anything like so that? So I only strictly read business books and investing books, really. Okay. No. Or, 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 or how to remove clutter, right? That's what do you, what yeah, do you call that? Why do people put that in like the business like self-development type I space? Say, I wish that's like personal development. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I guess I guess I'd add personal development. I guess that's what cool. seventy five hard as well. So yeah, I guess so. We're we're, we're very similar in that. I, I that's pretty much. I just read business, personal development, and um, investing. Yep, me and too. I, I, and have I do read one hundred ninety seven um, books behind me. I'd say one hundred ninety seven. Yeah, actually, you know what? I bought nineteen the other day, so two ten now. <laughs> do you, but, act, do you yes. actually keep? Do you have a spreadsheet where you're keeping count? No, but I I did count like uh, the other day, <laughs> and then I knew I bought thirteen more. I went to uh, the local thrift store and I bought a bunch of them. You're, oh. you're such a weirdo. 197. You know, not 198, not 196. Nope. 197. <laughs> 210 now, though. <laughs> that's, I think that's like too round of a number. I think you need to have like 211 books. I got to get one more. Yeah. <laughs> you have to. Yep. That's, I agree. You ever read Seth Godin? Yeah, I've read some of them. I, I love his stuff. I've read, I think I've only read one so far. What did you read from him? Honestly, I'd have to go look at my spreadsheet and look, but I forget. So it is a spreadsheet. I don't keep track of this. uh, So I have a spreadsheet, but it's not of all the books I own. It's of all the books I've read. Oh, interesting. As nerdy as I am, I I keep a list of that. That's pretty nerdy. I put a review of like, not like a full review, but just like I rank it as how good I thought the book was and then what year I read it just so I kind of keep track of when I read different things. Do you put like a few like cliff notes in it too of like some maybe like some major things you got out of it? No, because I do that in the books. Okay. So I just go back to it. Like if I know, like if I rank the book as great, I'll go. Back. I probably want to see the notes. I'll go back, pull the book out, and look at the notes. Interesting. You have a favorite author? Like anything you'll read from this from that person, it'll be good. No, because there's not a lot of repeat authors. I'd say in like the business or investing space. I mean, there are like you get your. See, I would put Seth Godin in that category. Everything I've ever read yeah, from business. him, yeah, I've, I've business marketing. It's kind of a yeah, mix. Yeah. I feel like it's a mix of like personal development, business marketing, and I say personal development because I feel all the stuff he does is very applied. Like I find he's the kind of guy I can read his stuff, and as I'm reading it, 
I'm just getting ideas to apply to my own life, and then I'll actually put it into action that next week, which yep. is really, really, I feel like there's definitely an art form to be able to write a book that actually makes the person want to take action. Because there's so many books I've read where it's like, that was an interesting principle, but I clearly have never applied it ever. And it's just something yep. I intellectually understand, but it's not really in my bones. That's how I felt about Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So I had the opportunity oh, interesting. to meet with Robert Kiyosaki and... I, I like the book. I get the book. I understand why a lot of people like it. If you don't come from like a finance or investing like philosophy or mindset already, I can understand yeah. how that could really get you there. But for me, I already had that mindset. I found, I mean, it, it was an interesting book, but I like tactical stuff that's going to make me get out there and do something. And, and that book didn't do it for me. So, but that's just one example. I think sure. to answer your first question, is there anybody you read everything of? And I'd say Andy Frisella, but he doesn't have a lot of books. He has one book. And, huh. but I guess the, the spin on that is I'd listen to anything he does. You know, all of his newsletters, his emails, his podcasts, everything. So he has a lot of that. All of that, yeah. Can you take a note? I I would also like you to include some of his stuff in the show notes, Yeah, so he's – I will give a a full disclaimer. He is very uh, straightforward, blunt, can be vulgar at times, but that's like – it's interesting because, and that fits me well because I grow up. I grew up racing motocross. You're, you're on. You're on the investment show that has probably used more swear words than any investment show on Perfect. the Apple iTunes Store. So, so, so your audience would probably like him because he yeah. swears a lot. Yeah, any, like anyone that. who's offended just, by swearing has already stopped listening to my show like two years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. And it's it's an interesting you know intersection for me because he's like that. He's like a more blue collar guy, but he's built a super successful business as an entrepreneur, and that's like my background. My family's all blue collar. I race motocross, things like that. But I also am like super passionate about investing. So it's like this nerdy side of me with also this like more, I don't even know, like burly man type, you know, guy that's like into all that stuff. So it's like, it's a really good fit for me. And and that's why I really like his stuff. That's cool too. And I'm sure there's something you can get out of it that, you know, even even, entrepreneur. So say, even if you don't have that background, there's, there's definitely things you would get out of like learning more about those kinds of people that didn't come from a lot of money that a little bit more blue collar. Um, there's, there's, there's something, there's something to that. You, where you can't just fake that. Yep. Yeah. He's just a genuine dude. That's, you know, actually had success. And, you know, I think I like coupling the two together because a lot of people in the finance or investing space, especially when I'm talking to millennials, they want to get rich quick. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that at all. And Andy talks a lot about that on how, I think it's, know, I think it's more, I think it's more, they don't want to do the work. Yeah, exactly. And he talks about putting in the work. I mean, if you read this book, it's just all about doing the work, doing the work. He's like, I'm not, I'm just a regular guy. I'm not super smart. I just put in the work every single day. And so that's what I like a lot. I really try to, you know, kind of put those two together and and teach people that. Are are you, are you pretty active on like a Fintwit? Not really. A little bit. So there was increasingly so. But okay. Not much. There was a. So I don't remember who it was. So if you're listening, I, I apologize that I'm not quoting you right now. But there was someone on Twitter, and they made a. They asked a question. They said, "What is one uh, thing, or you know, one belief or one myth that you used to believe in that now you don't anymore with within investing or finance?" So what I said was that if you have a good track record, the, the money will just magically come. And I, when I remember being a teenager, thinking, oh, if I have this great investment track record, you know, people will just give me $100 million, just like that. And, and you still hear, I mean, I, you know, when you go to the Berkshire, or at least when I go to the Berkshire meeting or Daily Journal meeting, you know, you meet some guys who are like, you know, between like 18 and 22. And a lot of them have this mentality, like, yeah, I'm going to go start a fund, just raise a bunch of money, 
you know, just show people about my track record and, you know, I'm like, wish, I wish you the best. And then in my head, I'm thinking like, they're going to have to learn how to actually raise capital. That's, which is a thing of itself and actually talk to people and call people and call people again and meet meet them again. And it's a totally different game. They want to know you. You got to put in the work. I mean, there's no way around it. You got to put in the work, no matter what you're doing, no matter what it is in life, personal finance, stock investing, real estate, self-development, it doesn't matter. Uh, I'm big into fitness as well. If it's fitness, it doesn't matter. You have to put in the work no matter what it is. And that's why I really Wait, like so it. you're saying that if you just get one of these like, vibrating belts, you're not going to magically have abs? Some people would think so. No, or or this magic <laughs> pill. I've heard I've heard that you can buy that. If you if you scroll Facebook before you go to bed, yeah. I can almost guarantee you will see a pill that you could take and you'll wake up very skinny and ripped and <laughs> yeah, it should work. I've seen commercials for for or remember hydroxycut? Oh yeah, there's there's tons of them. Jesus, that was that was I remember that was the one when I was like in high school and college. That it was, I knew people that took hydroxy. Yeah, I think I still see ads for that every once in a while. How is that shit still around? Like people ha- will pay for anything that makes them wealthier or or uh, you know more muscular or more attractive, and I think it just even falls, you know people will do it. So so so, answer me this: Why do you feel in the age of the internet and reviews where people want to do the due diligence and you know, it's like you go on Amazon, right? And like, if you're going to buy something new gadget, right? You always look at the reviews to see if it's legit. I, why would people still be duped by these bullshit supplements that um, they're scams? That's, I mean, let's just be real. These are, these are bullshit scams that the own, the CEOs know these, these products don't work, but they pitch them anyway how in the age of Amazon and reviews and the internet has this not been, you know, destroyed? I don't know. I honestly, Weird, I don't know right? the answer to that. I think, I think it's definitely come down a lot, you know, from where it used to be. Has it? But I think, I think so. Yeah. I like to think so. Or maybe I'm just, you know, in a different. Yeah, you're probably, community. I mean, you're pro- it might be that, right? But I, I do feel like this was a lot more prevalent, like when I was a kid in the 90s. Yeah, agreed. I think technology and, and just transparency has taken a lot of that away. Interesting. That stuff pisses me off, though. Me too. And that's why I like Andy so much is because he will he calls those people out so hard, and he's like the exact opposite of it. He owns a supplement company. That's his. He's an entrepreneur of a supplement company, but yep. he's like he. Their mission is telling you all about you're not like don't take this and expect good results in the next week, two weeks, three weeks. You know you got to put in the work, and these are just yeah. something that are going to help you. You know, reach your goals, but they're not going to do it for you. You got to do the work, and and that's why I, you know I I hate those types of things, and I kind of got into stock investing because of it. Uh, it's not a hydroxy cut, but essentially that version of, of stock investing. I got into day trading essentially is when huh. I first started. Thank God I never actually made a trade. I never lost any money. never did anything. I learned quickly uh, of Warren Buffett and got out of there. But I learned from a Facebook ad, this gentleman uh, who will remain nameless, but uh, I think he's more or less of a scam and you know, pitching day trading, get rich quick. And so it's the same thing in the finance world. The only, the only person who does day trading that I love is Dave Portnoy. Yeah. yeah. And what's you funny... entertainment, not his I, day trading. But the thing is, he doesn't even like his day trading, but people don't realize he's not serious. Right. The guy's a total troll. Yep. Oh, yeah. I watched him. <laughs> he was brought on CNBC a few weeks ago. and Which is absurd. But they brought him on kind of like just for entertainment purposes. And they're like, so Dave, tell us about your portfolio. He's like, well, you know, I've been like crushing it and, you know, just I'm such a great day trader and... Warren Buffett sucks, and you know, he just says all this <laughs> shit, right? And 
he puts his portfolio screen like on the monitor and it's like you know like 20 million dollars it was a big number and um but then when like the on the pnl it was like a big red loss and uh he, and the whoever was uh the commentator she goes uh you know if you're such a good day trader what's what's that number right there and dave's like well that's not important look at this number up here where i made a lot of money <laughs> like but there are it's like funny there are people who actually attack him thinking that he's serious that he actually cares yeah it's like have you watched his pizza reviews like come on he'll make more money off of those videos just making them than he'll lose on the day trading more most oh, most likely for sure of, of course of course have have you watched any of his pizza reviews i've i've seen clips and you know parts of them those are not, not those are brilliant those are brilliant like and you got you got to imagine too it's like for a guy like that, he knows what he's doing. He's not a dumb guy, right? He, like, you're if you're starting a publishing company like Barstool Sports and you actually make it in this day and age, like he started with a freaking newspaper, and everyone thought he was crazy because why would you start a newspaper? You're, you're, yeah, you're guys, smart, smart guys got something going on up there. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting though. Like going back to the whole conversation around nuances how you know you you take people like you look at the amount of people in business right where they're not intellectually smart necessarily but they're really successful in business you're not going to learn those skills from just like reading about it per se and i think that's where the personal development stuff comes in and that's why it's so hard for people to grasp because it's really an it's really something experiential not just like okay here's the step here's the technique and do steps one two and three and it, it's like, you know, us trying to buy low PE stocks. Yeah, well, you see so many people out there that will read a book and then try and become a life coach. And Holy they're shit. 22 Fuck. years old, and then just because they read a book, <sighs> they think they could be a life coach. And, you know, I honestly, I applaud them for trying to build their own business. Sure. That, but that aside, I mean, come on. You know, it's things like that. I had, and, I had Scott Forge on my show, and he's a very, very uh, famous coach. He's the head coach for uh he's the head agile coach at google and paypal and linkedin all at the same time and travels all around the country brilliant guy um he's led for you know over a hundred thousand people around the world and he's been doing this for like you know decades right um and he talks about this this exact concept where it's like he'll meet someone and they'll say like oh that's really great you're a coach have you ever like done like anything around like self awareness? I I've I've been doing that. I took a class and now I'm coaching it. It's like oh really? Like he you know, Scott is it's the way Scott is. He's kind of kind of like you know very sarcastic. Like oh really? Um, how long have you been doing that for? Six months. What? It's like oh cool. It's like what about you? I don't know. Forty years. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like little different. And and people think that like they they can you know read read about something for six months and then oh I'm now an expert. Yeah, you read you read one book, book on Warren Buffett, and you go, "Well, I really like to buy you know good quality assets with good management team." But below, <laughs> I like to you know they're fifty cent dollars, and I like to you know have a margin of safety, and as long as I can get way below intrinsic value and stay in my circle of competence, then you know I'll do okay. You know I'll do I'll I'll do okay over time. It's like you read one book. <laughs> yeah, you got to get the experience. You got to yeah. get out there and and get the experience. That, I mean, that's really what it all boils down to. I appreciate everybody trying to you know I, I appreciate the effort and I applaud you for that, but. You yeah. need the experience. By the way, that, that was that. Was, 
I just did my 18 year old Eric impression right there. You did you. it perfectly. Oh, I mean, thank you, you. You hit every bullet point. Of <laughs> like that was literally a sum up. If anybody wants to know what Warren Buffett is, listen to the last 30 seconds and that's Warren Buffett. Wow. I, I, I'm honored that I've just taken an entire, uh, hundred years career. Yeah. <laughs> condensed in 30 seconds. 30 seconds. <laughs> and if you listen to those 30 seconds, then you can be like that too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. What are you reading right now? What's what's the most interesting? Seventy five hard. That's, that's what, I'm that's reading what you're right reading now. right now. Yep. Yep. And how far into that are you? I am on page forty nine. And what's your uh, what's your take so far? I love it. I love it. It's uh, the non. So he didn't go through a traditional publisher. It's not a traditional type book. It's formatted okay. very differently. He writes very differently. Um, it's just a good book. I really like it. I'm doing so. It's a program. And then there's a book to go along with it. So I got the book as well. So I'm doing, I'm on day 24, or 25 of the program. And as you can probably guess, it's a 75 day program. And uh, yeah, so that's where I'm at. What's the program like? So the program is a mental toughness challenge. It helps you build all of these different, you know, essentially it's tra- supposed to help you build all of these different traits to become a better, you know, the best version of yourself essentially through self-development. And so the, everything you have to, there's, there's a lot, it's very hard. So you have to work out twice a day. Okay. 40, for 45 minutes each. Uh, one of those workouts has to be outside, no does it, matter does what. Does it matter what you do? or just Nope, doesn't okay. matter what you do. So a lot of times uh, people will walk, you know, just go for a walk outside for 45 minutes as their workout. But the hard part is no matter what. So if it's raining, snowing, right. sleeting, doesn't matter. You've got to do 45 minutes outside. So that's part of it. Uh, you have to drink a gallon of water a day. You have to read 10 pages of a book every day. You have to take a progress picture. And you have to eat, eat clean and no alcohol, and also follow a diet for seventy-five days straight. And it could be any diet, as just long as it's some kind it's of any diet, diet, as long as it's your diet. Yep. Okay. And what is the what is the purpose of drinking a gallon of water? It's hard. It's good for you. One, it's good for you health-wise. It's good for you. Is it? But yeah, yeah. About a gallon. They say average male that's relatively active, especially if you're working out twice a day. Okay. So you should be drinking a gallon, gallon of water. Um, once you, it sounds like a lot, right? If you don't do it, it sounds like a lot. But once you get into the swing of things, it's really not, not bad. Like I have a 40, 40 ounce water bottle, and I just drink three of those a day. You know, one on my way into work, one at work, one on my way home, and there's my almost there's my gallon. So it's really not too bad, and that's not including anything when I cycle or or go to the gym. So it's not bad. It's just it's hard. It's hard. Have you and, noticed changes so far from your oh, from yeah, this part? Big time. big time. Mentally, emotionally, physically. Yeah. I'm just a lot more locked in, focused. And that's why I, I talk about fitness a lot because I think to become the best investor, you need to have a clear mind. You need to be able to Wait, think. Wait, it's, it's just not drinking Coca-Cola and eating C's candies? Right. Well, that's the thing. I don't know how he's done that, but I think you could be a better, I think he could be an even better investor if he had been healthier. I, 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 always, I always say that. It's, I really do believe like that he's good be just like in spite of his horrible diet. He Great. made a, he made a comment. I, I, I'm not going to bash Buffett, but I am going to bash Buffett right now in saying, I'm, I'm like, I'm literally just like sitting as a value investor right now, but he made a comment one year about, um, something how like bro, like it didn't matter if he ate broccoli or not. Like, and, and, and Bill Ackman just like destroyed him with like, don't advocate for eating sugar. Like, you, like, don't don't pretend that there's no science around what you're talking about. Like, right? It's not scientifically true what you're saying. Right. Like, Just because he can deal with it, and that's fine. I mean, you can you can do okay, and you like. 
I can get by sure. eating unhealthy and, and I can still make good decisions, whatever, but I just feel a lot more focused, locked in. I sleep better. I just have better relationships with people. I have less stress. I'm more, you know, I have less, I have more patience. You don't like have that. brain fog and inflammation and like mood. The brain fog. That's the biggest thing. You can think clearly and make rational decisions yeah. more frequently than you can when you're not. So that's why I like to pair the two together. And, and the water, to go back to your point, it's hard. And if you don't do it, like if you, the other night, it was, not last night, the day before, I fell off a little bit. I didn't drink as much water during the day as I did. I got home and I was like getting ready for bed and I still needed to drink 40 ounces of water. And so I just sat there and I chugged 40 ounces of water and I had to get it in before bed. And I knew like I was about to go to bed in like 30 minutes to an hour. And I was like, this is not going to help me sleep tonight because no. I have to get up and do it. But it was that mental, mental challenge in your head. Like you just have to do this. And, and is, I did, so. is there, is there any risk though of like hurting your organs? If like you do it all at yeah, once? If you do too much. Yeah. If you do too much, you don't want to sit there and drink, you know, a gallon without stopping. Um, right. But, huh. But very consistently, like I'll go cycle and for like 45 minutes to an hour and I'll drink 75 ounces probably on that ride. I guess that makes sense. Like I I do Peloton sometimes and the amount of water I drink is like, it's like stupid. Yeah. So I guess if you're active, it makes more sense. Exactly. Yeah. What are other components of that program? So the no alcohol is hard for a lot of people. Yeah. That's really hard for a lot of people. Uh, I don't drink really that much to begin with. I mean, I do every once in a while, but. For the most part, I didn't drink anyway, so that's not super hard for me. Uh, the diet is hard for a lot of people because, or or the no cheat meals because that includes everything. Like he he gives examples of like a small little chocolate. Like you can't be at like a party and see a Hershey's Kiss and and eat that. Start over day one. Start all over. Wow. You know things like that. So you can't be walking by a candy dish at work and see a mint and eat that. You know, start over day one. So huh, things that's like that. cool. And, and, it's easy to me personally, and he talks about how various of these different things are hard for different people and easy for others. But for me, the progress picture is really easy. First thing I do when I wake up every morning, I walk to the mirror, take a progress picture. That's it. Yeah. But he says that he talks to a lot of people that fail and have to start over because they forgot to take a progress picture. And it's not because it's hard. Huh. It's just one of those things that you just, you got to do. And you just hold yourself accountable. You just hold myself accountable. Yep. Have you ever heard of the betting website stick.com? Of what, what's it called? Stick.com. No. It's a way to, it would be so like what you're doing is like a perfect stick.com bet. And what they, I discovered this through Tim Ferriss. Actually, he, he, he wrote about this as a, as a thing he used. Uh, I've used it twice. It's worked out very well. And it, it goes into like the psychology of how it's, it's more psychologically easier to want to avoid pain than, get pleasure so it makes it really painful for you if you break a commitment and it's like pay right not only do you have to pay but you you're you're forced to donate to a charity that you hate yeah i have heard of this i didn't know it was called <laughs> stick.com but yeah, yeah i have heard of this it's, i think i probably heard from and they, it from and they call it a, they call it an anti-bet yep i have heard of this so i had i had an ex-girlfriend of mine be my judge for for uh a task that I wanted to do that was very, very difficult. Happily agreed to do it. You know, maybe, maybe even a part of her secretly hoping I failed, <laughs> but no, she was, she was great actually. And, um, it was this like 30 day challenge that I was doing and I crushed it and I did more than I even realized I was capable of with certain fitness stuff because if I didn't do it, 
it would have been like a lot of money that I had to give to something I really hated. Um, and it's ama- and it's amazing when you're when you actually have that much pressure on you. It's like imagine if like you see a piece of chocolate and you know if you if you eat that little piece of chocolate at the party, you're now going to have to give out like you know I don't know five thousand dollars to some cause like you can't stand. You're not going to eat that piece of chocolate now. Nope. And that's it's more the same motiv- thing. You got to start over at day one. Yeah, that's, that's like for me. I'd rather pay five thousand bucks and start over at day one. <laughs> well, what, totally whatever causes that. you the most pain, right? So exactly. that's like exactly. I think that's the same principle, right? The I have to start over. I don't want to do. I'll avoid that. It's just discipline. I mean, it really comes back to discipline. And, yeah. and for me, it's doing what you say. I mean, and that just applies to so many different things. It's just doing what you say you're going to do. And we had Nir Il yeah. on the show on my show. And he talked about that, just being a person of your word and doing what you're going to say, whether it's not even with other people, put that aside, doing what you, that's how you build confidence and, yeah. in yourself, do what you tell yourself you're actually going to do. And so for me, this program has done, done a lot for that. And Andy actually developed the program hmm. because of a, tr- like a, a bet that you, similar to what you said, okay. he made a bet with someone that he would get down to a certain body fat percentage in 75. It just happened to be in 75 days by a certain date. And so 75 days and he'd have to give $250,000 to uh, this charity and it was a bet and he said well let's let's make a challenge or a program out of it and he developed 75 hard that's cool that's really cool yeah yeah you should let me know how that goes i will i'm on day uh, i think 24 or 25 today so okay but page we, 49 is it page 49 i'm on page 49 yeah but day 25 okay yeah. Cool. So, but i didn't start this book when i started 75 hard so the book was sold out the book sold out in like 10 minutes and so I didn't have a chance to get it. So I got it in the second wave. And so I was already like 11 or 12 days into 75 hard or even more than that. I just started it the other day. I was reading uh, total money makeover by Dave Ramsey first, but okay. yeah. So as soon as we hang up this call, yeah. I got to go to the gym and get my second workout in right before we started the call. I biked about 15 miles and then once we're done, I'm going to go get the weights in and get my second workout in. That's great. Well, we can wrap it up in a little, but I want to ask you, so two questions for you. Sure. Um, if someone could listen to one episode of yours from, you know, the one, the millennial podcast and then one for the real estate, what's one of each that you would tell people to listen to? There's one episode from each. I don't Do you have a specific right topic that they're interested in or no, just someone in general? They, 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 they want to listen to, uh, something about millennials and investing and they want to listen to something about real estate investing. What's the what's millennial the investing? I would say JL Collins episode. Okay. I think it was 47, but I could be wrong. It's around there. 46, 47 uh, with JL Collins. And on the real estate show, I would probably say the episode with Chad Carson. And just give me the, like the brief synopsis of, of each. I just love the way JL Collins thinks. And I think it's a great philosophy for a millennial investor. I think everybody should start there. If you want, he, so he's against picking stocks really for the most part, okay. but he, so he's a big index guy, but yeah. he says that he understands, you know, why people want to pick stocks. And so if you, if you listen to this, I think you need to have that knowledge. And if you say, okay, I understand this, but I still want to pick stocks anyway. Fine. Go do it. Sure. That's me. That's probably you. That's probably a lot of people. But I think you need to have that understanding. He has a lot of great personal finance perspectives and just knowledge that he shares in that episode. It's it's the most downloaded episode we've had, and it hasn't even been out that long. So oh, wow. it's just it's a really good episode. He's got one of the best personal finance books 
one of the most popular personal finance books that's ever been written. Uh, so just great info on there. And then on the real estate side, uh, Chad, we talked a lot about how new investors can get started. We talked a lot about different strategies new investors can use. And we talked about it from a Warren Buffett style approach, which okay. we talked about. I really like. Yeah, yeah. And then the other aspect is we talked about self, uh, owner financing, which I think is a super great strategy for investors that they should look into. So I think those two would be the great first episodes to start with. So make sure you send me links to those two for me to put on the notes as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And anything that you know, anything that comes up in the next you know couple of weeks before this gets published, um, anything you want to send me um, that you think are just interesting links or anything that'll support um, edges resources to, to to look at you know for this for this episode, uh, yeah, you know please good. feel free to overwhelm me with with anything you want. Yeah, so I'll send you some of the best episodes that I've done. Cool. I'll send you a lot about 75 Hard, um, First Form, the company, uh, just their mission, their vision, a lot of that stuff. And hopefully your audience and yourself will both find uh, value in it. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, for people that want to just be in touch with you in some way, or you know, what's, what's the best way for people to either follow you on a social platform or contact you? What's, what do you like to give out? So the best way to follow me is Instagram. Okay. Uh, I like to say my, if money was no object, yeah, I would be a photographer. That's what I would do. Oh, cool. I love photography. I don't share a lot of photos on there, but I just like photos. I like that type of stuff. So I'm most active on Instagram. Uh, what's, so what's your IG handle? My, my, my handle is the Robert Leonard. Okay. That's just my name. The cool. Robert Leonard. Uh, so I answer every single DM, all the comments, everything. So that's the best way to connect with me. I am on Twitter, uh, the Robert Leonard as well. I'm active on there. Not as active, but you get some stuff from me there. And then uh, you can email me if you want to. That's just Robert at the Investors Podcast. And uh, I get a lot of emails, but I'll try to go through them. And I will definitely get back to you at some point. Uh, wherever you reach out, I get back to everybody. Just take some time sometimes. Well, I, re I respect it. So you can email you. We can listen to you on your show or slide into your DMs, yep, as, they, exactly. as they say. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> cool. All right, Robert. Well, it was great to have you on. Any, uh, anything else you want to share? Before we, before no, we I really appreciate up. you having me on. I hope hope people enjoy. And absolutely, if you have any questions about anything we talked about, feel free to reach out. I, I love talking to people and you know, love learning from what you guys got going on. So please do reach out. Uh, it, it's very clear, my friend, that you, you love talking to people. So uh had a lot of fun. It's funny because I'm an accountant by trade. So not a uh, lot of people are like that. I'm going to give you a compliment. I, I would never be able to tell. Well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Would not be, if, I, if I'm like, you seem like an accountant... I'm not giving you a compliment right now. Yeah, you're right, <laughs> right. I've been told I'm the most talkative accountant that they've ever met. So cool. We'll, we'll take that for what <laughs> Sounds good. All right, man. Well, it was uh, good, good chatting and uh, have a good rest of your week. All right, Eric. You too. All Talk right. See you. Bye.